Good morning. morning. Yeah. Open your Bibles to Samuel. First Samuel we are in this morning. Uh, We're going to wrap up chapter 1, go through chapter 2, verse 11. That's kind of our, that's that's where we're headed uh, this morning. What I'm going to do is a lot of verses to cover, so I'll read the passage of Scripture as we go through the text and uh, the outline that I will give you in in a moment. So um, we want to now dismiss the kids for Children's Church as uh, you go and learn about Jesus. We pray your blessing on, on you guys and the teachers as they teach you the scriptures and the word of God while we stay in here and study together First Samuel. So those are our verses, chapter 1, verse 20 through chapter 2, verse 11. Now, let me bring everybody up to speed. I just want to encourage you. Um, I don't usually do this, but I want to encourage you to, to get last week was the introduction sermon on Samuel. There are CDs in the back. You get a free podcast. You can download it from our website. You can even watch the video if you have really absolutely nothing to do for 45 minutes, 50 minutes. Uh, but it does give you some context. I'm not going to give you all the context I gave last week. We spent a lot of time on that, but I, I encourage you to get last week's sermon. Uh, last week we went back to Genesis. I'm not going to go that far today, but I do want to give you some context. And I'm going to go, I'm going to go back to the part or, or of, of redemption history where Israel finds themselves under the leadership of Joshua in the promised land. Joshua had led them into the promised land. They had settled in the promised land. The 12 tribes have taken their prospective land in the promised land and they became complacent. They became rebellious. And it was a time in what's called the judges or the area of the, of the, the, um, era of the judges where God would send these leaders, these regional leaders into, in Israel, raise them up in Israel to lead the people. There was a time of the judges. You can read that in the book of Judges. Now, as I said last week, the, the circular behavior of the nation while they were in the promised land, getting settled in and became rebellious and complacent is very simple. Uh, they, w- they, would, they would rebel against God. They would be complacent and rebel against God. God would then discipline them in love sometimes with armies, and God would, would squeeze them, pressure and, and distress, right? Because discipline hurts. If it's good and loving discipline, it will hurt. And then they will repent and, and return back to God and then pray for a deliverance, and God would raise up a leader, a judge, to lead them back into victory, and around and around they would go. They would rebel, they would become complacent, God would discipline them, they would repent, they would cry out, God would send a deliver, and around and around and go. In fact, if you turn to Judges, uh, just a book uh, before Samuel, you'll see the very last verse in Judges summarizes the days of Israel and what was going on. It says, in those days, Judges, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, sounds like today, but... Uh, we're talking then. The nation seemed to be aimless. They were out of, you know, um, they were out without moral compass. They were out uh, leadership. They were, they were, no one really had to lead the people to obey God. And we'll see even the high priest Eli today or next week, uh, in a couple of weeks, um, was a man who was raised up as a leader, not a very good leader at all. So the story of Samuel, so you know, opens up as the end of Judges. Judge, the book of Judges is concluding, and the book of Samuel in the redemptive history of God's people opens up. Samuel was a judge. Samuel was a prophet and a priest. He was a man who would bring godly leadership back to Israel. He was the one who would anoint the first king of Israel, Saul, and would anoint the beloved second king, King David. Samuel was a unique person raised up 
by God at a key time in Israel's history in a dark place, and he will bridge, Samuel will bridge the gap between the time of the judges and the time of the kings. Samuel would prepare Israel for the line, starting with Saul and David, from where the kings would come, and the final king, the king of kings, that's why we got the title of that, this this sermon series, the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, he would be the Messiah. But before we get to the kings, before we get to to Samuel, this great leader, we get to his mom. Samuel opens up with a beautiful story, a woman of faith. Samuel's mom, her name is Hannah. Last week we saw that Hannah lived with her husband Elkanah, who was a Levite in the hills of Ephraim. It was just not the two of them, it was also Penina, the second wife. Of Elkanah. We talked about that last week. You can get the CD. Chapter 1, verse 3 through 7 tells us that the family would take regular trips to a place called Shiloh, to, to a trip to Shiloh where the tabernacle was, the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, it, was a, it, was, it was a time for family worship, but it was showtime for Penina. She would take the opportunity as, this, the, as the family, Elkanah's family would go up and all her kids would come along and there was Hannah all by herself because Penina seemed to have children every year. And Hannah was barren. The text tells us that she, Penina, would irritate her and provoke Hannah on purpose. She was called her rival in verse 6. The text also tells us in chapter 1 that Elkanah loved Hannah. And maybe Penina knew it. Maybe, maybe Penina knew that her husband's heart was really for his first wife who was barren. She, of course, was giving him the children that were necessary in those days. But Hannah was barren. So Elkanah goes to the place of worship. When he gets to the place of worship, he's there worshiping the Lord with his family, and he gives Hannah a double portion. Why? Because the text tells us, verse 5, he loved her. Then he tries to comfort her, if you remember from last week. She's weeping. She's, She's upset. She's crying. She's refusing to eat. And he says to her, aren't I better than all the sons that you can't have? Went over like a ton of bricks, right? I think he means well, if that helps. Guys, don't try that at home. (laughs) Hannah gets up from the table in a sense of of resolve, goes to the tabernacle and prays, pours out her heart. Unfortunately, she runs into another man who is even more insensitive. It's Eli, and he says, why are you drunk? Chapter 1, verse 10. Deeply distressed, she prays to the Lord. She weeps bitterly. She makes a vow. O Lord of hosts, if if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. If you do that, Lord, then I will give him to you. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. It's a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow uh, uh, is a consecration to the Lord. The vow is usually temporary, but Hannah makes this a lifelong vow. She's giving up, if she has a child, she's giving up her claims in order that her son, the claims on her son, in order that her son will live and and serve in the temple all the days of his life. She, She is literally relinquishing everything that would have been valuable to her if she had a son. And after she prays, chapter 1, verse 18, Hannah went her way and ate, pours out her heart, goes her way and eats, and her face was no longer sad. 19a, they rose early in the morning, still in Shiloh, they worshiped the Lord, and they went back to the house at Ramah. 
And we see this woman of faith. We see Hannah, who is so downhearted and downcast and without hope, is able to eat now as she emerges from, the, from pouring out her heart before the Lord. She's full of, of, of God and confident in him. And although at that moment her circumstances have not changed, she's found a peace with God. She's found a peace with God that is, that is satisfying to her soul. And now she's capable of eating and worshiping and returning with her family. She's rejoicing even before she received the son. Her joy, her satisfaction was not dependent upon external circumstances, but now are found in her God. And the story, if you read chapter 1, the story doesn't go, Hannah prays, Hannah gets a son. Hannah prays, Hannah gets pregnant. Hannah has a son and Hannah is joyful. Instead, we find Hannah praying. Hannah full, Hannah joyful, and then Hannah gets pregnant. Verse 19b. And Elkanah knew Hannah, that's code word for sex. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Verse 20. And in due time, Hannah conceived. The word Hannah means what? Grace. And bore a son. She called his name Samuel. For, she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The Hebrew, in the Hebrew, the word Samuel sounds like God has heard or I asked of God. She names him Samuel. Samuel is born. Two simple points. A couple of sub points. First, we're going to see Hannah's surrender as she dedicates her son. Her vow remembered. Her vow kept. Hannah's song. We're going to look at Hannah's song in three parts. We'll hit it. Quickly, you guys could talk about it in community groups this week. She first rehearses the attributes of God. Why is that important? Then she, what, she, she sees the reversing standards of the world. Why is that important? And then finally, she renews the hope of the king. That's our outline. Number one, Hannah's surrender, going back to verse 19. She rose early in the morning. She's at Shiloh. She worships the Lord. She went back to the house in Ramah. Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And when the Bible talks about the Lord remembering, again, it's not like he's recalling to mind something he forgot. Oh, yeah, I did make that promise. I, I forgot. I'm sorry. Right? No, it's a special attention, a special care that, that he is bestowing. It really has to do with, with God's faithfulness. He remembered her. Verse 20, and in due time, God's time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name saying, who said, I have asked... For him from the Lord. Verse 21. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. This is moving forward. Samuel's born. But Hannah did not go up, but she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what's best, do what seems best for you, until you have weaned him only. May the Lord establish his word. So the, women re- so the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. You know, I, I realize as we read this narrative, it's, it's kind of it's hard to, to get into the mind and, and heart and, and what might be going on with Hannah. But, but I think it's important that we look at that and we try to figure out and try to get instruction as she and her faith encourage us, us this morning. Hannah makes a vow. Hannah goes home. Think it through. She gets pregnant. God opens up her womb, and she finally has a son. The baby is born. The answer to her prayers. 
Shame gone. Now she can join the other moms in Israel. But this child is not staying with her. She made a vow. This is not a fairy tale story. This is not a one-dimensional narrative. This is real life. She carries her son for nine months and goes through the extreme difficulty of having a son all along remembering that this son is dedicated because of the vow she had made. Can you imagine, ladies? I'm a dad. In ancient times, women used to breastfeed their children two years, three years old, sometimes longer. Maybe that's where my Italian family picked it up. I'm not sure, but this is before stores, purified waters, infamil infant formula. She, she wants to wait. She's not trying to, to, to skip out on her vow. Her intention is to stay home, wean the baby, and bring him there. And the first time that he goes to Shiloh will be the time that she will leave him there and return home without her son. Look at Elkanah. Elkanah. He makes some sort of vow himself. There, it, 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 he's received some instruction of the word of God. He makes a vow. Keep your vows. Keep you the word. If you read the Mosaic law concerning sacrifices, it was normal for a, a Jewish male to go to the sacrificial services, these festivals, three times a year they were mandated to go, and to make vows. That was something that's part of the Mosaic law. So we don't know if this is a, another vow that he made or maybe he is confirming the vow that she made. Either way, he is committed to caring for his family. He is committed to bringing his family to worship. In fact, which I learned this week, I did not know, according to Numbers 30, the husband had the, the, the biblical right in the law to, to, to um, invalidate Hannah's vow. I didn't know that. So if you make a vow and you're a female in those days, the father could step in and go, the, the husband could step in and say, I invalidate that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He, 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 he chose himself also to, con, to, to bring this baby, to confirm her vow, even though it meant losing the firstborn son to the temple of his beloved wife. Hey, Tim, low me down a little bit, please. I, I believe that Hannah and her husband were looking at this baby born for these three years, two, three, four years, depending on when the festivals fell, and were willing to keep their vow. She was willing to keep their vow because she had an encounter with God. God was her provider. God was her treasure, was their treasure. God was their rock. God was their salvation. They understood what Paul told the Roman church that idolatry is worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator God who is blessed forever, amen. Children are a gift from God. Matthew Henry writes this, she, Hannah, overlooks the gift and praises the giver, whereas most forget the giver and fasten only to the gift. Every stream should lead us to the fountain and the favors we 
the favor, the favor we receive from God should raise our admi- admiration of the infinite perfections there are in God. There may be other Samuels, but there is no other Jehovah. End quote. In order to follow through with this, in remembering this and, and, and getting ready to do this, there had to be a, this deep affection, this deep commitment to God in the midst of a difficult decision. One must believe God is good. We must believe that God is good, that his will and his ways are good, and that he is enough in order to step out in faith like this. In her barrenness, she was not forsaken. In her loneliness and insecurity, she was not abandoned. The cure for her soul was the love and the presence of God. And the point of Hannah's story is not that if you trust God and you pray hard, he will give you everything you ask for. Are we to pray hard and ask? Yes. But we can't strong arm God in giving us what we think we need by attempting to have, as they say, more faith. J.D. Greer in his book said this, God is significance and stability. God is significance and stability. If a loving, all-powerful God is in someone's life, the approval of others become inconsequential. If a loving, all-powerful God is in someone's life, her future, our future, your future, is in capable hands. And if a loving, all-powerful God is in someone's life, she can endure the hardest struggles because he is enough, end quote. All that is what I think sustained her for three years. Two, three, four years. She kept her vow, verse 24. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with, the th- with a three-year-old bull, an ephah flower, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull. Then they brought the child to Eli. And she said to Eli, Oh, my Lord, are you, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in the presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Can you imagine the ride to Shiloh? It was quiet. It was a quiet ride. Some of you wondering, I mean, how could, how could a mom and dad bring a child that's four or three and leave them somewhere? Maybe some of you going, I would do that in a minute. But most of you... And to make matters worse, they're going to leave him with Eli. We're going to find out Eli and his sons is not a good influence. Did they know that? We don't know. But we'll find out in a couple of weeks about Eli and his leadership in his home. For one thing, we know she's just keeping a vow. She's just keeping a vow. In fact, the text tells us, um, if you have an NIV or an ESV, it says a single three-year-old bull. It's based on the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. But the Masoretic text, the MT, if you see MT, it means Masoretic text. The older Hebrew text, it says three bulls. I think the Masoretic text is probably correct. You'll have it in a footnote. Because in Numbers, it talks about a bull that's being sacrificed. And what she's bringing up there with a full ephah, with a full skin of wine, is enough for three sacrifices. I think the narrator is, is, is showing us and, and 
pointing out to us this impressive amount of offering that is being offered by this family, this, this generosity, this, this, this presenting of this gift, and, and the heart of faith that actually gave birth to it. It's very hard to, to fathom this. And the weight of, of, of keeping a vow is not the same as it is today as it is in that day. The closest thing we have is a marriage vow. And even that is eroding in our culture. Today, our vows are kept, and we keep them as long as they are beneficial, as long as they do me good, as long as I get something from it. But in those days, a vow was kept at the cost of whatever it was to keep the vow. Vows were meant to be kept, and Hannah knew vows were meant to be kept. And and don't miss also what's going on here. All right, I, I understand you're like, okay, where do I fit in all this? Am I supposed to bring my four-year-old son and bring him to King's Chapel and say, here, pastor, he's yours? Don't do that, please. <laughs> I would take him home probably, but in some sense, this, this story, this narrative, this birth is something we cannot identify with. But there's some common ground as well. Parents who are living in covenant relation, New Testament covenant relation with the Lord, followers of Jesus Christ, should follow their example as a general principle. We should solemnly, parents, and passionately desire that our children are given over to the Lord and that their lives and their gifts and their talents and all that they are will bring glory to him. That's what Hannah wanted most. I think Hannah wanted most is keeping her vow, but also that her son Samuel would would pursue the Lord, would love the Lord, would worship the Lord. And she's prepared to do whatever it takes that her son would be a godly son. In fact, she knows that this child belongs to the Lord. Verse 27 and verse 28, two different Hebrew words. One is granted, as the Lord has granted me the petition. It's, It's giving someone a gift. The Lord has gifted me. And then in verse 28, if you have an NIV, it's the word give or dedicate, NAS, ESV, lent. That has has a different word. It means to give back or or to give in response to to a request. It's it's to show us that when when God grants us something, it's not the same thing as we grant it back to him. He doesn't give us as we give him, right? God owns everything before and after he grants it to us. And God still owns everything both before and after we give it back to him. When God gives you something and entrusts you with something, we're children here, it belongs to him. And we're entrusted to that which belongs to him. It's called stewardship. Whether it's your money, whether it's your, 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 your talents, your gifts, your children, it's stewardship. Your children belong to him. Everything comes from God. Whether it's your, 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 your finances, as I said, the very breath in which we breathe are all gifts from God. So when you give to the Lord and you dedicate things to the Lord, your children or, or your tithe and offering, you're really giving back to, to the one who owns everything anyway. Catch that? Right? So we don't, we don't give to God and, and we don't say to God, listen, I'm giving this back to you. You're accountable to me. I want to know what you're doing with it. That doesn't happen. He does that to us. We're accountable to him. God gave Samuel to Hannah. Hannah gave Samuel back to the Lord and fulfilled her vow. So the question, the principle for us this morning is, what are you working towards with your children? 
What, what do you want from them? What are you looking to get from them or, or them to be? Is your, is your greatest concern for your children really is just loving and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you willing to make the hard sacrifices, particularly when this culture, when, when, when we're battling against a culture and the world offers so much to us, if you just lack your commitment, if you just have a lack of commitment and you're not really pursuing, you have this carefree attitude that other things are more important, they offer you so much, are you willing to say, no, my, my, my number one role as a parent is that you see, love, and worship Jesus. Are we gathering in his, together in his fellowship? Are we gathering together in his word at home? Are we gathering under the instruction of the word? Now, I, I know, I, I know, I know for sure, uh, believe me, I know that there are no guarantees that our children will, will, will walk with God and love Jesus. That's not my responsibility. That's between them and the Lord. But my job is to model the love of God, to believe the gospel, to pursue Christ, to confess my sin, to regularly get instruction by his word, gather with his people, to teach my children, to live out the gospel as best I can by the grace and the mercy of God. My job is to recognize that children are a gift of God, and I'm only a steward of his creation. One of the greatest joys I get as a pastor is to have baby dedications. Some of you are children here have been dedicated. And it's a time when, when the parents, by God's grace and by the, by the partnership of the church, make vows before the Lord that they will raise their child in the admonition of the Lord. They will live a Christ-life example as best they can with confessing sin and acknowledging sin and, and worshiping and trusting Jesus. They will raise their children in the truth of the word of God. They will gather together for corporate worship. They will proclaim the gospel and live out the gospel and declare the gospel to their children and that they will not stand in the way. So I always end with this. They will not stand in the way of that child if God calls that child to a foreign land. Doesn't that sound like something Hannah was doing? As she brings her son, look at the last verse of, of the, chapter one, and he worshiped the Lord there. The word worship is to bow down, and the narrator tells us that as as Chapter 1 ends, she lends him back to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. The question is, who's he? Is, is she talking about Eli? He's in the context. Is he talking about Elkanah, her husband, as he worshiped the Lord there? Or is the narrator saying that Samuel, at four years old, is worshiping the Lord? We don't know. I, I think it was Samuel. Chapter 2, verse 11, when this song ends, which we'll conclude today, it'll be, and she leaves there and leaves Samuel there tending to the Lord, verse 11, uh, in the presence of, ministering in the presence of the Lord with Eli. So just for a moment, there's mom, right? And, and she's dedicating, and as she's getting ready to leave, there's her son, worshiping the Lord. A three-year-old saying goodbye to mom, worshiping the Lord. Now, as we move into chapter two, as we'll see here in a moment, Hannah's song, understand that there are no chapters in the Bible and no verses in the Bible in its original. So we have the original scrolls. It was just one story. So the story rolls from chapter one into chapter two. It's not like ours another day. It is in a time frame where she is worshiping the Lord. She is giving her vow. They are, they are worshiping God. And she now is opening up to this song as she's fulfilling her vow. And, and it's an incredible prayer, an incredible song, as she looks beyond the circumstances right before her to her God. 
Look at Hannah's song. It's a prayer. Many people call it a song because of its lyrics. The, um, the lyrical qualities are similar to Old Testament songs and hymns. And what is very interesting is that at the beginning of this song, I'm going to call it a song, this poem, this prayer, at the beginning of the song, we have this, these words of Hannah, and then in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and then if you look at 2 Samuel, at the very end of 2 Samuel, we have the song of David. Sort of like these two bookends, recognizing that they were actually one book. Opens with a song, ends with a song. Opens up with a song talking about the horn, a metaphor, talking about the rock, talking about deliverance. David does it, Hannah does it. Talks about a king, the anointed one. You have these two beautiful songs as bookends. Why? Because the book is about someone else. The king. The book is ultimately about Jesus Christ. Three subpoints. First thing, let's look at this song and we're going to see Hannah is rehearsing the attributes of God. Listen, everyone has a theology. Everyone has a theology. Theos, God, ology comes from logos, meaning words, words about God, the study of God, the understanding of God. Everyone has a theology. Everyone. If you're a believer, you have a theology. If you're an atheist, you have a theology. Even if you don't believe in God, that's your theology. The question is not, do you have a theology, but is it a good theology or a bad theology? Is it based on truth or is it based on a lie? And the truth about God, who God is, can only be known by God making it known. And Hannah, I know from her song, knew the holy scriptures where God has made himself known. Hannah knew the scripture, verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts, that's rejoices. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. She goes from theology, God is, to to my personal relationship, my God. Her, 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 Prayer is so personal, personal. Her, her heart exults and rejoices in her God. Her horn, her strength, her, her triumphant power is exalted in her Lord. Her mouth is open wide. My mouth derides my enemies. She's boasting over her enemies like an animal who is boasting over the kill. Why? Because she rejoices in the salvation that God has provided for her. Now, she may be... She may be, this may be applicable maybe for the moment as she's experiencing this vindication uh, before Benina, right? And this removal of shame because of her offspring. The previous prayer, she was in great anxiety in chapter one and she wept and now she is rejoicing. She, she, she now is speaking about her heart and her heart is rejoicing in the joy that she has and the delight she has in God. Now, when you read the word heart in the Hebrew in the Old Testament, it's more than just her emotions. It is, is the center, is the focus of the person. Her, uh, our thoughts, our plans, our decisions, our will, and our deep emotion comes from the heart. And, and in Hannah's case, the Lord was now the focus of her heart's confidence and joy. The joy she is experiencing is in the midst of it and welling up from, 
from who God is and her returning back to God, her vow. She has unshakable confidence that God is in control. It was in his providential care and ordering of the world that changed everything that she went from anxiety and, 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 and weeping to joy. She knew that God had heard her. She knew that God had rescued her. She rejoiced in God's salvation. God's rescue and salvation is a reason to rejoice. Salvation is such an important word. We throw it around, but it's the deliverance of God. Hannah's rejoicing Not because, oh Lord, I I really appreciated all that dark, deep times in my life and I'm praising you. No, she's looking beyond that. She's rejoicing because she recognized that she's now an instrument of God in the mighty plans and purposes of God because there's no other God like him. Look at verse two. There is none holy like the Lord for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. That's That's Hannah's correct theology. God is holy. He is unique. It means that God is separate otherness than creation, that God is above all things. God is before all things. God is sovereign over all things. His holiness has to do with his righteousness and purity as well. He is separate from sin and evil. He is perfect, holy, and just. How could someone rest in the sovereignty of God, if God was not holy, perfect, and just. If God was evil, if God was unjust, if God was all those things, and yet in control of the cosmos, I don't think we would rejoice in it. But he is. And therefore, Hannah celebrates God's holiness, his otherness, There is none beside you. There is no other God beside you. I know you've been taught and some of you in school and wherever you are uh, that there is more than one God. There is one God. All other gods are not gods. No other surrounding gods of all the nations are no gods. And she knows the one true God. She loves him. She worships him. She has a relationship with him. And she connects this holy other God, this, 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 this purity and righteous God as a rock. It's a metaphor of protection, of security, of solidness, firmness, reliability. Her God is her rock. We love to sing that song. Some of you have sung it. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. No other God like this God. Hannah moves from theology to a point of of application. Look at verse 3. This holy, righteous God. He is none like you. You're the rock. Verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. There are arrogant, prideful people out there. She says, you got no right to boast before a God. He knows all things. Listen, there's not a secret that is kept from him. There's not a mystery hidden from him. There is nothing unknown to God. There is no possible way the proud will be able to deceive the Lord. In fact, the proud people, the pride, profess their self-centeredness, their their self-confidence and sufficiency, and they ignore God. They ignore ignore who God is and and the truth about God. But they they will be silenced. In fact, not only is he aware of their thoughts, he is constantly evaluating their deeds, but when the Lord acts, God is seen as the one who is reversing the order of creation. 
He, he, when God is acknowledged as the one true God, the, the salvation of, uh, of Hannah's soul, uh, the one who sees all things and hears all things and will judge all things, Hannah recognized that there's, there's a reversing standard going on. Look at verse 4. I'm going to read 4 through 8. And we'll see how this unique holy God of knowledge, when he's acknowledged, how, how things turn upside down. Just listen. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He, the Lord, brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the Lord of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. Do you see what she's pointing to, this pattern that she's drawing from her theology and from her own experience? And how now she views the world through, through her relationship with God and things have changed? That God will make the strong warrior weak with broken weapons, yet those who stumble will find their strength? Those who were full will now go hungry. Those who are hungry will get plenty of food. The one who is barren gives birth to seven, but the one who has many sons is forlorn or pines away, becomes weak, dried up, and wasted away. Those who are dead will become alive. Those who are poor, in contrast with the rich, number six, the humble against those who exalt themselves. You see the contrast? Hannah's worldview, her, her peculiar worldview, as I said, very different. Hannah was not describing the world as we ordinarily see it and experience it, or the world from our natural observation. She is describing it from her own experience through the Word of God, that human power and human weakness look completely different if you believe in God. To her, God seems to work through, does not seem to work through strength, but weakness. Not through, through wealth, but poverty, poverty of heart, poverty of soul. Hannah's intimate faith in God is saying, if I had not experienced all that I've gone through, if I have not experienced the brokenness and the grief and the rejection in my barrenness, the sense of alienation I went through, I would never discover this, this reversal of the world. And would have never discovered a deep satisfaction in God. For if not for going through this weakness and brokenness, Experiencing this in my own life, I would have never come to this place of rejoicing. Yeah, God does work through the marginalized, through the weak and suffering and the difficulty. Why? Verse 8 at the end. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. The Lord, the creator, the sovereign one who established the world, sustains it in all that is existent. The world is not created and sent on its merry way, as some would teach. It belongs to God. And we are utterly dependent on him. And when, her, when, and when we read her song, we, we, we see, we see this. We see this story that Hannah moves from emptiness to fullness. She moves from this, this pain to, the, to this praise. Her heart moves from, from mourning to joy. And you know what? 
She recognizes this upside-down reality because it looks just like Jesus. She rehearses the attributes, the reversal of the world, and finally, look, she's having hope in the king. He, verse 9, will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Interesting, the song begins with, I rejoice in your salvation, and now ends with, talk about a king. There's no king in Israel. They've never had a king. But she's talking about a king. And and I believe partly is because she knows her Bible. God promised to Abraham that kings will come for him. God made a promise in Deuteronomy that he will raise up a king. And notice this king is anointed. He's the anointed king. The word anointed is where we get our word Messiah. The Christ. Hannah's song is a song of prophecy. It is prophetic word. It it looks forward to the time when Israel will have a king, Saul and King David, of course, but to the ultimate fulfillment of the one true king. It's a messianic prophecy. Her hope is in the coming of the king. David Ralph uh, Davis, Ralph Davis in his commentaries uh, wrote this. Uh, This is a great quote. Listen to this. It is easy to react superficially to these opening scenes in 1 Samuel. What's the big deal? So Hannah has a son now. That's nice. And the rival wife, Penina, who has kids coming out of her ears, has to eat crow. So now things have been calmed down a bit at Elkanah's flat in Ramathah, Zophim, wherever that is. No, he says. This is no piddly little affair. This is a manifestation of the way Yahweh rules and will bring his kingdom. Hannah's relief is a sample of the way Yahweh works and of the way he will work when he brings his kingdom in its fullness. The saving help Yahweh gave Hannah is a foretaste, a scale model demonstration of how Yahweh will do it when he does it in a grand style. Each one of Christ's flock should ingest this point into her heart or his heart, into their thinking. Every time God lifts you up out of a miry bog and sets your feet upon a rock is a sample, listen, of the coming of the kingdom of God, a down payment of the full deliverance, a micro salvation that will be yours at last, end quote. Hannah stands in line of many Old Testament women who are barren. And God intervenes mightily and they've experienced this particular act of God's grace in which they bared a son who played an important role in God's redemptive story and history. People like Sarah and and Rebecca. And then years later, as the New Testament opens up, there's another woman who is barren and her name is Elizabeth. In her old age, she, she has a son by God's grace. His name is John. He's the forerunner of the Lord. And of course, lastly, is a woman who was barren, not because she could not have children, but she's a virgin. Her name is Mary. She conceives and gives birth to a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And what does Mary do? She sings a song, like Hannah. In Luke chapter 1, she sings this. Listen. 
My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Sound familiar? Mary knew what Hannah knew and knew much more. Mary had been told that the child she would bear will be the great king who will have an eternal kingdom which will never end. Mary knew that this child will turn the world upside down. And Hannah's song is an anticipation of Mary's song. And Mary's song is the Bible's way of showing us that Jesus Christ is the ultimate embodiment, culmination of the pattern of salvation that Hannah experienced in her own soul. Because when Jesus Christ comes into the world, he comes not in a castle, but in a manger. He grows up, the scripture says, he had no place to lay his head. He comes as a poor man, as a weak man. He is excluded, rejected, hated, tortured, surrenders his power, and is brutally beaten and put to death. But he's a king. He's the anointed who doesn't go to a throne but goes to a cross. And if Jesus had come the first time in strength to destroy his enemies, we would all be doomed. If he came and he said, be strong, save yourself, do it on your own, and then I will bless you with salvation, it would only be for the proud and prominent ones, but even that's an impossible task. Nobody could save themselves. But if you have a God, now listen, who in weakness goes to the cross, he, 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 the Lord Jesus dies a substitutionary death in your place, takes the punishment and wrath for your sins, then you and I can be saved by grace. And salvation can, can be received by the weak, by the humble. Like Hannah who cried out in her, in her inner poverty and brokenness, and she hears, I am your rest. I, w- I love you. I-, I am your salvation. I am your rock. You see, because salvation is not based on achievements or accomplishment. It's not based on strength. It's not based on, on, on how many children you have, how many sons you have, how much portfolio money you have in your portfolio, how much your spouse loves you, what career you have, what you look like. It's completely based on Jesus Christ who died on the cross. And when we believe in him, you can be a completely forgiven and accepted. And now listen, Jesus is the ultimate one who was hungry. Scripture tells us that for 40 days he fasted when the devil came and tempted him. Jesus experienced the ultimate barrenness when on the cross he was abandoned by everyone, including the Father. When the Father turns his face away as Jesus dies for our sins, drying up in the white hot anger of God's wrath and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus dies to death. He does not deserve and humbles himself to the point of death. Philippians, Jesus emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men, found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And let me conclude this, though. The king of kings, through the cross, is strong. He's the ultimate 
horn of salvation. He is full, full of glory in his exalted, glorified state. He went from the barrenness of the cross to the fullness of inheritance of sons and daughters in glory. He was dead. He is now alive. He, through his poverty, we become rich. Second Corinthians, through his humility, he is brought to the place of super exaltation. Philippians 2, again, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Heaven and earth, every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And now, family, the only way to turn things around to where they're supposed to be for Israel is through a king. And David will do some of that. But it's ultimately the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So this morning, as we respond in worship and singing, if you're here this morning and you're lonely and you're hurting and you're poor and you're marginalized, you're spiritually bankrupt, God is saying to you that through this king, I am your Father, I am your wealth. I am your righteousness. I am your God. I am your satisfaction. I am your comfort. I am your salvation. The question is, do we believe in the God that Hannah's trusting in? Father, we see this beautiful song of Hannah. We see her faith in you. We see her pouring out her heart. We see her keeping her vows. We see her loving her family. We see her uh, uh, trusting in you, Lord. Uh, We thank you for that example that we have in Hannah. But most importantly, we are thankful for Jesus Christ, the God in whom she is resting on. Help us to see him. Help us to trust him. Help us to pursue him. Help us to see in our weakness, in our vulnerability, in our our, uh, brokenness, We can come and you hear us, you love us, you embrace us, you forgive us because of all that Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross of Christ. You are the King of kings, Lord Jesus. May we walk with you and love you and treasure you and worship you. And it's in your name we pray, amen.